Serial killers often have a signature, a recognizable flair to their crimes. For Amy Archer Gilligan, it was lemonade. All she gives them is this, this lemonade concoction that she, she makes that she says will cure anything. The bad part of this for them is that she is poisoning these people with arsenic. From 1907 to 1916, Amy ran a successful nursing home in Windsor, Connecticut, though her residence never seemed to stay for very long. At first, the people of the town thought she was a savior. In reality, she was an evil, disturbed, murderous woman, a woman we might call an angel of death. When a woman commits murder, we are often left with more questions than answers. We have all these ideas of how women should act, and that doesn't typically involve killing people. So what pushes a woman over the edge? Is it because she fits a certain type? Can assigning a label to her crimes possibly help us understand what happened? I'm Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer fascinated with why women kill and by how society reacts when they do. On this episode, a look at a truly frightening kind of killer, the kind that strikes when you're at your weakest, when you think you couldn't be in a safer place. This is Why Women Kill, Truth, Lies, and Labels, a podcast presented by CBS All Access. Don't forget to watch Why Women Kill, a new television series about three women driven to commit murder. Stream it now, exclusively on CBS All Access. The archetype of the angel of death has its roots in theology. Various descriptions of these angels appear in Islam, Judaism, and Catholicism. The archangel Michael, for example, is sometimes called an angel of death. By the 1990s, the term started being used to describe a particular type of murderer. Angel of death may have given lethal injections to more than 130. Angel of death nurse jailed for murdering four people with injections. Angel of death nurse in Texas charged with killing. An angel of death killer is typically someone working in a caretaker role, a nurse, a doctor, a social worker. This type of killer is drawn to helpless people. She thrives on the power she holds over her patients. She just wants to take care of them until the end. About a hundred years before the phrase angel of death started making headlines, Amy Archer Gilligan was acting out the role with horrifying results. It started in 1907. Amy and her husband James moved to Windsor, Connecticut. They buy a big red brick house and open up one of the first ever nursing homes in the country. They call it the Archer Home for the Elderly and Infirm. People really flocked to her home and families were waiting in line to put their elderly people in, in that home. That's M. William Phelps. He's a crime writer and an investigative journalist. He wrote The Devil's Rooming House, a deep dive into Amy's terrifying story. When someone wanted to bring their aging parent to her home, her pitch was pretty simple. Amy would say, you know, this is the best place for them. You know, they're going to be around other elderly people. They're going to be able to go in my garden. They're going to be able to take walks into town. And I'm here. 
and I am here doing God's work. God's work. Our first clue that Amy would soon become an angel of death. She wrapped her evil deeds in a shroud of kindness. She donated to her church. She was present in her community. The image that she projected was that, I'm your savior. I'm here to save the elderly from going into these disgusting asylums and letting them really just rot away until the end of life. The Archer home could house 18 people at a time. Her billing arrangement was truly unique. Rather than charging weekly or monthly rent, families were offered a flat rate. For $1,000, Amy and her husband would look after your relative for as long as they lived. The problem is that $1,000 for life care, but if nobody dies, there's no turnover. So that money runs out quick. Just imagine what kind of incentive that puts on the business owners. Yeah, well, at the time, it seems like no one who took them up on their offer considered that. During the first three years of operation, 12 people die. No one can say for sure if those deaths occurred naturally, but it's not a good look for the Archer home. Amy's husband dies in 1910. The doctor says it's from natural causes. Never mind that Amy had taken out a life insurance policy on him just two weeks earlier. At that point, Amy takes full control of the house, and conditions for the residents deteriorate quickly. She's allowing them to sit in their own filth, their own urine. She's not bathing any of these people. Residents are writing letters to their families, imploring them to come help. One woman is writing to her daughter saying, why have you just put me in here? This place is a hellhole. She doesn't feed us. She doesn't take care of us. She screams at us. She yells at us. She beats us. And what makes it even more heartbreaking is that the families don't seem to care much either. For the most part, the letters go unanswered. So people put their elderly in there and they just forgot about them. And I say this with authority because I've read the letters. Even more frightening, the death rate spikes. In fact, it doubles. Almost 10 residents, half of the entire house, are dying every year. If somebody pissed her off, if somebody said something bad to her, if someone questioned her judgment, if someone started talking about the conditions in the home, boom, they were dead. She used arsenic and systematically poisoned the very people she had promised to care for. And she chose a number of ways to do it. She liked to put the arsenic in the lemonade. She'd put the arsenic in the food. Sometimes she would just, you know, give the arsenic. If someone was really sick and they were confined to bed, she'd just give it to them orally right in the mouth. In the summer of 1914, a resident named Franklin Andrews dies. His sister is suspicious. She approaches the police, but nothing comes of it, so she goes to the press. A reporter starts digging. The stringer for the Hartford Current, the local reporter who writes obituaries for the town of Windsor, is seeing one death after another come out of this one address. He eventually takes what he learns to the police. The investigation takes more than a year. They exhume five bodies from the cemetery, and sure enough, all of them had been poisoned. Amy is finally arrested. On May 9th, 1916, the local paper runs this headline. 
Police believe Archer Home for the Aged a murder factory. For the most part, angels of death go after people who are more ill because there would be less chance of getting caught. Carol Lieberman is a forensic psychiatrist and author. She's often an expert witness in criminal cases. It would seem more reasonable that that person would have died anyway. These types of murderers seem to thrive on the disparity between what they look like, a loving, compassionate female caretaker, and what they really are, a killer. The feel-good aesthetics of caregiving often serve as the perfect disguise. And oftentimes, no one really suspects them. When we put our family members in places, we expect their needs to be taken care of. That's Stephen Holmes. He's an author and a professor of criminal justice at the University of Central Florida. He says that, often, angels of death derive pleasure from their actions. It's that last moment where the individual takes their last gasp that some of these individuals say they receive this euphoric high. And what that is, they don't know. They can't explain it. It's just it happens, the person passes, and they feel alive. We do know a few attributes of this type of killer. They can have a hard time maintaining relationships. They tend to lie about their backgrounds. And they often have a history of mental instability and addiction issues. Amy, for one, had a problem with morphine. She lied about having trained as a nurse. And she may have killed her husband. But there's very little available research that helps us understand how widespread, or rare, this archetype actually is. One study does give us some insight. It was published in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. From 1970 to 2006, researchers found 90 cases of healthcare serial killers. 86% were nurses, both male and female. Doctors and other staff made up the remaining 14%. Take the blinders off. For every hospital, every nursing home, every employer in healthcare, and be aware that this can happen. This is a phenomenon. Beatrice Yorker Schumacher wrote the study. She's a professor of both nursing and criminal justice at California State University. She says when you cross reference these killers with medical diagnosis books, you find that the killers share a common diagnosis. They fit the category of what's called Axis II disorders, as in the number two. Axis II disorders are personality disorders. And you can be absolutely sane, in touch with reality, and competent, and be a psychopath, or a narcissist, or a histrionic person. Histrionic means that the person can be melodramatic. So those are the kinds of things that we see all over the place in these nurses. They have lots of access to personality traits. And for all we know, there are quite a few people in healthcare who are able to control their urges or who may only do it once and be so freaked out that they never do it again. Author M. William Phelps says, in this respect, My research shows that Amy Archer Gilligan is a bona fide psychopath. She knew exactly what she was doing, and she knew how to charm people. 
She knew how to pathologically lie. You go down the list of traits and, you know, she kind of checks every box uh, of this psychopath. This was her game. This is what she liked to do. And if narcissism is a common attribute among these killers, like Beatrice said, that makes a lot of sense because ultimately an angel of death killing is an expression of power, lethal power. Angels of death thrive on having the power to choose who lives and who dies. Here's Stephen Holmes again. I don't want to say it's always a God complex because that's very different, but they don't believe that other people are equal to them. They believe that there are other people are there for them to play with. But because they're so careful in what they do and their predation, they hide it. And so you're not going to notice that. You're not going to see that. They're not going to do anything to draw out that they're different. And that allows them to survive and to continue on. In 1917, at the age of 44, Amy Archer Gilligan was found guilty of killing five people. On appeal, that was reduced to a single murder. It's likely she killed many more. Some believe she could have poisoned as many as 60 people. Then, while she was in prison, her lawyer convinced a court that she had lost her mind. She was sent to a psychiatric hospital where she lived an incredibly long life, unlike her own unfortunate residence. For more than four decades, she was cared for by real nurses. She died in 1962. She was 88 years old. Amy Archer Gilligan's position as head of the Archer home may have given her a sense of untouchability. She likely enjoyed the power. Motives for other angels of death can vary greatly. Another variation of the angel of death is someone who wants to appear like a hero. That's Carol Lieberman again, the psychiatrist from earlier. An angel of death with this creepy hero complex appeared in a veterans hospital in Massachusetts in the early 90s. She was a nurse and was convicted of killing four patients and attempting to kill two others. The way that she did it was she injected her patients with epinephrine, which of course would send them into cardiac arrest. And then she would run to the emergency call, you know, they call over the loudspeaker, um, code blue or whatever each hospital calls it. And then she would attempt to do CPR herself. The reason why she did this was to get the attention of a hospital police officer. Hospital rules stated that a police officer had to be called in during any emergency. So she'd stage these little episodes where she'd have to race in and save a life. But she just wanted to get his attention, wanted everyone to think that she was this big hero. The problem, well, one of the problems, was that she wasn't always successful in reviving the patients. Hospital staff have since suggested she was responsible for over 300 emergencies and 80 deaths over seven years. Damaging testimony from the very police officer she was trying to impress helped convict her. She's serving life in prison. And sometimes there are nurses who kill because they can't seem to stop themselves. This was the case in Canada. There, between 2007 and 2014, a nurse injected more than a dozen elderly patients with insulin. Some got very ill. Eight of them died. And she went to the mental health treatment center and she said, I'm suicidal and I'm homicidal. I need to be admitted. And... 
I need you to know that I've also been killing patients and I'm turning myself in. That's Beatrice Yorker Schumacher from earlier. When the nurse finally confessed, she was desperate for help. And they said, you understand that we can't keep this confidential. And she said, I know that. And she said, I need treatment. I have a problem. After she was arrested, former colleagues admitted that they had called her an angel of death before they even knew that she actually was one. One person said she'd even heard her tell a patient that it was okay to die. This case sparked a public inquiry in Canada. Beatrice was an expert witness called to testify. They asked me, did she come into work intending to kill? And I said, no, the exact opposite is true. She came into work telling herself, you will not get that urge to inject a patient today. You will not do that. Be a good nurse. Do your job right. Do not get that urge. When confessing to her crimes, this nurse said that she knew the difference between right and wrong. She also said, quote, God or the devil or whatever wanted me to do it. She was given a life sentence and sent to prison. In 2018, she was moved to a medical facility for treatment. Finally, some of these killers genuinely think they are doing something good. They might even consider themselves less angels of death and more angels of mercy. They really do believe that killing a patient saves them from a worse fate. That perspective often has its roots in their childhood. Here's Carol Lieberman again. What's interesting is sometimes these angels of mercy have had a parent themselves who have had a chronic pain or a long and protracted death, let's say, uh, was in the hospital or kept going in and out of hospitals. And it was very traumatic for them, often as a little child. And they don't want the family of the person who they're caring for to have to go through that because they identify with that pain. Of course, this is a somewhat of a rationalization <laughs> because they're not giving the family much of a choice or the patient for that matter as to whether they think it would be better to not have to go through this. In the end, Amy Archer Gilligan was convicted of a single murder. But her real death toll was probably in the dozens. And she killed in a very public setting over a span of almost 10 years. Stephen Holmes, the criminal justice professor, says there's a reason these female angels of death get away with it for so long. It has to do with how women most often choose to kill. Female killing is cold, calculated, methodical. And so that allows them to continue on for a long time because they keep it together at a crime scene. It's a very controlled crime scene. So rather than a blood-splattered hallway, often the only clue from an angel of death crime scene is a bottle of medicine missing from the drug locker. As Beatrice puts it, It's just as lethal to drip five extra drops of potassium chloride into an IV line that runs directly into the bloodstream. It's just as lethal as somebody who beat somebody over the head, cracked their skull, and killed them that way. Intellectually, we understand that. 
But emotionally, we don't react to those two actions the same way, which is perhaps why killers like Amy get away with it for so long. A little surface-level kindness goes a long way when it comes to disguising death. We abhor and we have criminalized masculine forms of violence, and that is gunshots, bludgeoning, strangling, beating, things that are overtly physical. What we as a society have not really identified and dealt with is feminine forms of violence, which is smothering, poisoning, the sort of killing with kindness. When Amy Archer Gilligan opened the doors to her home for the elderly and infirm in Windsor, Connecticut in 1907, people thought she was a benevolent angel. Most of us would have likely seen her as a savior, too. As our own family members age and get sick and approach the end of their lives, we all become more fearful of death. Anyone who promises to soothe that fear looks like, well, an angel. It's a terrifying thought that the person we turn to when we or our loved ones are most vulnerable is secretly operating according to their own deranged plan. That's why the angel of death is one of the scariest archetypes of all. Because it tells us that sometimes, hidden in the dark corners of our healthcare system, there are devils waiting to strike. I'm Tori Telfer. Next time, the story of Mary Percy and the dangers of a woman scorned. Let's meet the jealous lover. This is Why Women Kill, Truth, Lies, and Labels, a podcast presented by CBS All Access. One more thing. Have you seen Why Women Kill, the TV series? It's the story of three women driven to kill, all living in the same house but at different moments in history. It stars Lucy Liu, Jennifer Goodwin, and Kirby Howell-Baptiste. You can watch it online. It's now streaming exclusively on CBS All Access. Go check it out by signing up for a free trial at cbs.com slash whywomenkill. That's cbs.com slash whywomenkill.